back from the abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Eacock. We're back with the season four opener, and I'm really excited for you all to hear this story. It basically includes all of my favorite Back from the Abyss themes. Addiction, hopelessness, alienation, shame, parenting, finding connection and meaning, psychedelics, emerging hope, redemption. Well, it doesn't include running, but the next episode does, so I am relieved by that. Today we have the story of Lydia, currently 18 years old, who struggled with addiction ever since middle school, and also her mother, Juliet, who's forged her own brutal journey. I recorded them separately, and then Chris wove their narratives together. I was hoping that separate recordings would allow each of them to go deep and speak from the heart. And as you listen, I think you'll agree. This is a mother and a daughter, raw and open, and at their most vulnerable. I really believe we are the stories we tell. So I'm very thoughtful and mindful about the stories I tell. Um, And of course, the logical way to tell this story is in a linear fashion. (laughs) But when I kind of stepped back and thought about how to share this life that I'm living, really, in a family that's experiencing the things that we're experiencing, one of which includes the story of my daughter, Lydia. When things in our family started to careen out of control, like a station wagon on black ice, um, in about 2015, I was, as you might imagine, any parent might be just clinging on, desperate to stop the madness, to fix things, to find the answers. And I was in such the grip of fear, and I was in such an acute state of shame that um, I just couldn't function. And it wasn't until I started to surrender, started to create space first to just breathe. (laughs) Mm. In surrendering, you find your breath again. And then that creates just a little bit of spaciousness. And you're like, wait, this feels good. I can expand this spaciousness the more I surrender. And although the circumstances of my daughter Lydia and my family are still painful at times. I don't live in that state of suffering. Mm. And, and there's so much to the wonder that is the now. There's so much there. It has given me permission to stop looking for the causality of what did I do wrong and how did this happen and looking for explanations instead you start opening up to these incredible possibilities of really everything and anything that this life means why is my kid going through this why are so many young people going through this why is it so prevalent 
in our culture today? What's happening and why? And beyond that, like, who am I to say that she, my daughter, is meant to live in a particular way for a particular length of time? And maybe this soul you know, is, is here for a briefer moment, but a beautiful one mm. that's meant to bring us all the grace that we feel being in her presence. my years of using are kind of blended together like the sense of time is like very off so I either started using like very end of sixth grade or uh, beginning of seventh grade and it was like very obvious that like my using happened right as my dad's using started to happen so when he first relapsed is like right around exactly the time that I first started using. He, I know he like went away. I feel like we did know that he went away to rehab. I just don't think we knew why. Like I didn't know that he was using heroin. I thought he was just using alcohol because that's what they told us. Which is, but it's weird because like if from the beginning of my usage, I was like, I had the mindset of like, I'm going to try heroin. Like some people, when they first start using, they're like, these are my boundaries. I won't cross these lines. Like, no, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be the biggest and the baddest of using. Like I wanted to do more than everybody else. Even as what, a 12 year old or 13 year old? Yeah. You knew you were going to be 100% in. Yeah. And it, it was immediately out of control. It, it there was never a time where my using was in control at all. I mean, you know, first I just started with smoking and drinking, but when I was smoking and drinking, like I was smoking every day in school constantly, you know, like failing classes, skipping classes to stay in the bathroom and smoke, you know. Um, and then with drinking, like it was never a huge like problem, like not daily, but the occasions that I would drink at, like I would drink at school events, you know, that like nobody else in middle school was doing anything other than me and like my other friend or like a few of my friends. And then in eighth grade, I I remember the conversation I had with my best friend at the time who was kind of, me and her were like, our friendship was based off of being miserable and addicted together. And that went up to just very recently where we, we lost touch just recently, but like for the whole, like all these years, it's been our whole friendship is like, we will drown together. You know, we had this conversation and we were like, we need something that we can't get caught for, you know, because weed smells and makes your eyes red alcohol you can smell it on your breath like we need something that's more low-key and so we were like pills let's start popping pills and it was like a just we were like I don't know like some people just lease to that we made the decision to in middle like, school just, in middle school to start um popping pills and I just became a compulsive like I would 
see it in the medicine cabinet and um no matter what it was I wouldn't look it up like if I saw a pill bottle I took it like without even thinking it ended with an oxy addiction you know I was my friend's dad had oxy and Xanax prescriptions so I was stealing from him and was this coming sort of from a I'm just imagining like a spirit of adventure or adventure or a kind of a spirit of rule breaking or out of like sadness or misery or, you know, what do you think was driving this, this, you know, reckless, impulsive, like, you know, going through medicine cabinets, taking whatever you can find pills down the hatch? I think it was a mix. It was definitely a lot of like misery and depression. And, you know, I felt very out of place in middle school and my using made that even worse feeling out of place because everybody hated me because I was like the bad kid and like that you know and they weren't doing any of that stuff yet so like it just it made me feel even more lonely um but then I think there was also like a sense of like I like wanted to rebel against you know the rules and I I think I wanted I felt so unseen it was a way that I could be seen. People gave me attention for it, even if it was bad attention. start to know that Lydia was going off the rails? I mean, there were incidents um, in middle school, really. Um, she was caught smoking. She drank alcohol at a friend's house. Um, she became more withdrawn from the family. But again, middle school. Middle school kids are moody and often isolative and unpredictable and they're often risk-taking and how do you know that what seems like normal bell curve of middle school behavior is actually predicting something really ominous yeah so hard to know um and i was a wild teenager myself (laughs) who got in trouble and drank too much and but it did seem different. And because we have a history of addiction, I think I reacted to it with a lot of fear and resistance. We raised our children in a sober home because my husband um, had always been in recovery. And the way we talked about it with the kids was that dad had an allergy. When they were very little, dad had an allergy. And that's why we don't drink wine and things like that. Um, And they came to understand what that meant later. But I didn't do Lydia any service by uh, fearing that she would be like her dad because she has um, a lot of his traits and tendencies and personality. They're very similar. People would always comment that they looked similar, that my other daughter and I look similar and have similar temperaments. And, um, And I always felt like being aware and cognizant of um, a predisposition to addiction would would caution her in 
put some fear in her maybe, but in fact it did quite the opposite. It made her feel, I think, that it was just inevitable that this is who she was to become because she was just like her dad. That's how she interpreted it. So, um, you know, <laughs> that was maybe not the wisest thing. But yeah, but how could you know? I mean, you could yeah. see it. I'm guessing we're going to hear a number of things that you've second guessed and beat up on yourself about, but there you, you're trying to give your kids some honest, open information. Hey, addiction runs in our family. You may well be at high risk of this. So, you know, be yeah. careful. Yeah. And that was it. That was the extent of it. But she really, um, I learned later, she really um, internalized that. it sounds a little like rather than, you know, seeing a parent as sort of a, a warning beacon, like, oh, my mom struggled with X or dad with Y, your dad's struggles with addiction for you, it almost drew, drew you into it more, like made it more inevitable. Like, yeah, that, I'm going in. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, my mom had this conversation with me where she was like, you're you're really, you know, similar to your dad. So like, you can't, you know, drink like how I drink with my friends, you know, like you see me drinking with my like girlfriends, like you can't do that. Like, you're really, really similar to your dad. So like, and I didn't know that he was like had a relapse when I was younger. So I didn't know what that was about just until recently. But I, I had it in my head that like me and him were twins like we were exactly the same and um yeah I think it was partially like I'm gonna do this to like see why you're doing it I'm gonna do this to like maybe relate to you and then also I was just like like I'm gonna end up just like you so why not you know start now change from you know, maybe moodiness or isolation or occasional drinking or smoking to something that either you or your husband thought, you know, we have a whole different thing on our hands right now. It's It was the fact that she would, you know, kids only have limited access to things, but whatever she could get access to, whatever it was, she wouldn't even ask questions. She would just, if someone handed her a pill, she would take it. And at that time, some, I don't know how, but they were getting access to Xanax. And so it was the Xanax and her basically passing out in school. In middle school. Uh, sorry, that would have been, I think it started actually in middle school, but we didn't realize what was going on. But it was in ninth grade that she had an incident in school where she they had to call, they called, did they call it an ambulance? I can't remember, but um, they had to call us and we had to come and get her. I mean, had she been an impulsive kid or was this impulsivity more limited to the, you know, risk-taking around substances? 
That's a hard question for me to answer. When I think about her as a little kid, she was, um, she had such a zest for life and a charisma about her and, and a funny kind of slapstick humor. Um, kids loved her. Adults loved her. Um, she never struck me as being particularly impulsive. She was definitely a kid who wouldn't save her candy for later. <laughs> she was not a save for later kind of kid ever. But she, in school, in elementary school, she was a kid who followed directions and sat on her spot when she was told to. And she didn't get in trouble or act out in any way um, when, when she was a little kid. So I never really thought of her as impulsive. Yet here, as you say now, she's becoming a kid that if something is available, she'll take it. Yeah. No questions asked. Yeah. Like, what's this going to do? Or how much should I take? Or is it safe? Or where did you get it? No, I'll take it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you and I have talked about, like, is it is it predominantly addiction that we're trying to address here? Or is it mental health? And I do think that there are mental health issues going on for her. She's She describes like a... a and she's actually drawn and collaged and created these video montages to try to capture the feeling of this, this grip of, I don't know what, I don't know how to put it into words, but she feels in the grip of something that is, it's like what Ram Dass talks about is the too tight shoe, like just trying to get out of that too tight shoe. And so the drugs and alcohol do that. Um, it's, it's, it's such a a painful thing as a parent to watch her as she will describe feeling more herself when she's in an altered state. Was there a point where you started to get worried? Not until just like a few months ago that I was, I've been super ignorant to the, like how dangerous my using has been. And are, like, you, are you 18 now? Yeah, I'm 18. Yeah. So it's, t- it took years of really heavy out of control use before you actually started to have some awareness that this could kill you. Yeah. I mean, life. even like some super like, serious overdoses i was like that was crazy like that was my mindset i was like yo that was that was awesome like that was a crazy you know like i i overdosed on um adderall once and it was us that was like my most serious overdose like it was really bad but i was like that was crazy i was hallucinating so much and i was like laughing about it with my friends i was like you know like my mindset when i took it like nobody takes a full bottle of adderall and doesn't expect to overdose but me, like I, I took it and I was like, this will be a crazy high. Like mm. this is like, this will be uh, legendary was kind of my mindset. I was like, I'll get to tell my friends about this and they'll be like, Oh, you're crazy. You know? And interesting, like not any part of it was suicidal or self-harming or, or trying to sort of make some kind of gesture of pain. It was, it was literally like almost like jumping off the highest cliff. Like, look, everybody, Nobody yeah. else will jump, but nobody else will jump off this cliff. But not only that, I'll swan dive off it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of that's that's how my mindset has been through my whole addiction. Is it's like I I will outdo you. 
Like you think you can do more than me, watch me. When I started to open myself up to wonder, I started asking myself questions like, what kind of ancestral energy is working its way through her? What kind of, we've had family trauma in our immediate family, but generationally, what's working its way through? I mean, it's not like I'm looking for answers, but there are just these big questions about everything from the significance of the microbiome and sleep and, I mean, evolutionary biology. Mm. Like, what hubris to think that as a species we, we've made it. Here we are, we've arrived, and we're done. It's like, no. And what's happening with our young people may, in fact, be an indication of a shift, um, an adaptation that's having some really destructive consequences, but is probably trying to evolve the species. And because I've, and we'll talk about this later, but because I've been thinking about consciousness and using psychedelic medicines to explore the expansion of consciousness, my own and others. I wonder how that's evolving with and through her and us. We just don't know. These five senses are so limited. And if she leaves this time-space dimension, who are we to say that she's not meant to serve another function in another form? I, I, I hold all of these as possibilities. And it might sound to some people like a crazy rationalization of a desperate parent, terrified to lose her kid. But that's where I am. That's honest. What about this question, and you and I spoke a little bit about this before the recording, but this idea of, were you self-medicating anything? Because, you know, many people, like if you go to 12-step groups, you talk to addiction experts, they'll say, oh, you know, addiction's about trauma, addiction's about pain, addiction's about, you know, trying to heal something. But, you know, occasionally, and I had a, a person like this on my podcast a couple of years ago, sometimes it actually seemed like the core thing is the addiction. Yeah. And that it causes lots of pain and grief later, but that there wasn't necessarily any beginning thing. Now, you, you said your dad relapsed right around the time that you started yeah. nursing. But, you know, looking back, you know, all the work you've done, what's your best understanding? Like, is addiction your primary issue or do you see it as some kind of self-medication thing? 
see, I still struggle with it. That's still something that I'm really working on in therapy. I think it's, for a while, I I really blamed it on my dad. And I was like, you were my best friend and you kind of, you know, abandoned us for drugs. You chose drugs over us. And I thought that it was more, I was like, if you can do it, then I'm going to do it too, you know? But I I think it is just like the the core of my problems and it's created because like all of the trauma that I've been through since I started using has been because I'm, you know, using and getting in these dangerous situations because of my use. started showing that she was going to descend into just out-of-control use. I mean, do you remember what kind of strategies you and your husband were using? What, you know, were you thinking, gosh, if we double down as parents, or if we love her more, or if we put more limits, or if we get her into therapy, or if we limit, you know, put more rules or whatever, like if, if we do something, we're going to be able to address this. Like, what did that look like? All of those things. Therapy, of course, was the first thing. And she rejected every therapist. So we cycled through. Of course she did. (laughs) Yeah. We would insist on whatever it was, six sessions, ten ten sessions, thinking that they would break through. And it didn't happen. Mm. Um, She wanted to be high. yeah. Yeah. She wasn't a customer. And then in terms of how to address the problem my husband and I were arguing and and having differing points of view about yeah say more about that like what in those early years what was your perspective as a mother and his as a father and his as an addict in recovery I would imagine those could have been some pretty heated emotional discussions it was really tough really tough because I was looking for answers and and really trying to place blame on myself on him we would just vacillate. We would go from being very strict to saying, she's got to figure it out. She's going to find a way to get drugs. We, we have to let it be. And then something would happen and we'd clamp down. And so it just, we just stumbled and fumbled along. And all the while the tensions in the marriage were just increasing. Mm -hmm. What was his perspective? Because again, he's walked this walk. He's, he had years of recovery. You know, he arguably might be an expert, although, again, this was his first child who was going through something similar. And I'm curious how that may have been both congruent with yours and, and different than, than your attitudes. Well, the interesting thing about my husband's journey is that he relapsed about the same time that she started to go off the rails in middle school. And of course, they're connected, um, but not directly because her struggle started before he relapsed. And although I started by saying that he had been in recovery for all of the years of their lives and our marriage, 
he was not what I understand now to be in recovery because now since that relapse in 2015 and his subsequent spiraling, he has found his way to a deep and profoundly meaningful recovery. And now that I see what that looks like, I realize that all of those years, he was not in recovery. And he, How would you characterize it? What was he? The, the victim stance, mm. the looking to blame. Everything is somebody else's what what has been done to him mm-hmm. and how I'm not specifically I was not meeting his needs nothing that I could do was enough so it's not like he had you know the AA 12 step way to guide her he really didn't he was he was he seemed to be at the same loss that I was at in trying to help support find the way forward and really we were just blaming each other that whole time. You know, it took him relapsing, going to rehab. At one point they were both in rehabs at the same time. It was insane. He lost his job. I mean, it was just the most chaotic, painful period. And my my older daughter trying to hold it together and get herself into college and have a normal teenage life. And, you know, we had, we had been that family who always sat down for family dinners and family vacations. And every Saturday we were out taking a hike or going to a museum. Like we were a family that enjoyed each other when the kids were little. Um, so it just was so harrowing to see it all falling apart and have no idea how to stop it. I think they both had really different ways of approaching me using, you know, my dad, partially out of guilt. He wasn't really hard on me. He was like the Disneyland dad where he, you know, he would like try to make up for his faults by like, going and getting us candy when my mom said no and like you know and he he felt like he he didn't have a place to tell me what to do because he was doing the same thing and my mom since he was doing that she felt like she had to double down on um you know going really hard on us uh, on me I'll speak for myself you know going really hard on me and like yelling and just you know just like she was like you can't do this. You can't do, she was like the, you know, the police officer. And he was like, okay, like you can do this when you're with me, which I, neither of them worked because one was enabling and the other made me, you know, never want to talk to her. Like I, I tried to avoid her at all costs because we had such a terrible relationship. Do you think as you were spiraling into addiction in middle school and high school, was there anything that your parents could have done differently that could have arrested that spiral or is it that as you said earlier like you were going to get to heroin you were going to go all the way take this to its full conclusion yeah I, I don't think that anything they would have done would have changed it I think like I'm the type of person where I had to learn that for myself it would have been I mean maybe if my mom had the mindset that she had now I wouldn't have tried to rebel so much like the more she 
tried to get me to stop and like tried to force me to stop the more I did the opposite of what she wanted me to do so maybe if she came at it with like that kind of mindset of like if you're gonna do that you know I'm not going to enable that I'm not going to engage in that but like I can't do anything to stop you. been to rehab a bunch of times yeah how many times um seven or eight residentials yeah yeah and did anything start to shift for you in any of those programs um because you know, one of the one of the criticisms of addiction treatment is that you know it fails or people go back and back and back and and it can be so frustrating for people struggling with addiction or their families. Like, oh my gosh, this is a third rehab, 10th rehab. Like, is this helping at all? But it does seem like a few things have shifted with you. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I'm curious, at least treatment-wise, you know, all those stints in, in the different treatment programs, did did that start to sh- shift the needle at all? Yeah. Well, it didn't – rehab doesn't work when you're forced to go – And you, you know, because that makes you so angry and you feel, especially as a minor, like you feel so out of control, there's no way out. So then you start acting out like me, I would AWOL and I would like be so rude to staff. Like I just started acting out because I was angry and felt confined and stuck and I didn't want to get sober. When it started changing was the last two rehabs I went to were really like really impacted me and because I chose to go to both of those. And why did you choose to go? Because I recognized for the first time that I hit somewhat of a rock bottom. The first one that I chose to go to, I used to always like say like, I'm not going to stop until I hit, you know, this rock bottom. And like, I would list things out that would be my rock bottom. And every single one of those things happened but like I would I I did so I smoked so much heroin and meth and I did a bunch of coke I went into like psychosis and I was in the tenderloin in San Francisco and I ran away from my friends um because I you know I don't know I had some like delusion that they hated me and that they didn't want to be around me so I ran away from them and in my psychosis, I thought that um, I had been homeless for like 15 years. Um, it was like Thanksgiving or Christmas Day and I was all alone. I thought that there was, you know, somebody coming after me and that like, um, I was just, I, I had accepted death. I was sitting like in this little corner. It's freezing cold. I'm sitting in this corner alone and I was like, this is, this is it. I'm all alone and this is how I'm going to die. And, you know, it's so real. Like, I still have those memories as if that's actually what had happened, as if I actually was, like, homeless for 15 years and all that happened. So it was kind of like, once I was out of that, I was like, that is higher power Mm -hmm. showing me all these things I said needed to happen in order for me to want to get sober. And so I was like, 
I don't, I can't keep doing this. I need to go to rehab. So that was a turning point. Yeah. To basically be kind of alone, psychotic and cold on the streets of San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I, too, finally sought recovery from myself about that time. So I was in Al-Anon, and I remember going to those rooms (laughs) and hearing people talk about children who had died and just thinking, oh, no, 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 nope. I would feel physically sick. And like want to run from the room. But I also realized that I could barely show up in the room. (laughs) Like this was a signal to me that the problem was also in part mine. So I kept showing up and forcing myself to talk despite how ashamed I felt. And it was in Al-Anon that I started to surrender to say, yes, this is out of my control. It's true, I might lose her. And the more I heal myself, the more space opens up for that to not be the eventuality. Hmm. What do you think of everything that happened at Al-Anon? What was most helpful to you? terms of getting to where you are today again to to a place of just really unusual peace and acceptance considering that things are still ominously bad mm. but it sounds like that journey started with Al-Anon you hear parts of your story in everyone else you feel that common thread that humanity and Like I said before, you begin to surrender to people called the higher power. I certainly didn't call it a higher power when I entered into the rooms, but I have come to believe, as I said, in a much greater something going on. There's something decidedly other going on around us, in us, through us, all the time. And without going too far out there. I really believe we're co-creating this existence. And so, although right now I cannot deny that I have a daughter who is struggling with mental health and addiction challenges, I hold a space for her in which she's thriving. And the more that she our family, our community, hold that space for her, there's no doubt in my mind that she will unfold into it. Hmm. While still holding the possibility that I could lose her at any minute. And, and, and that tension and duality is always there. Yeah. I mean, this idea of the dialectic, you know, that, yeah. that it's so powerful in therapy to hold two opposing views at the same time. 
which in my mind is such a marker of psychological health when people can do that. Um, and in your case, as, as the mother of an addict who's still deep in it, that's not one of the only ways through. It's to hold both that, that beautiful hope and that deep gut recognition that it may not end well. Mm-hmm. But then again, what's well? Hmm. It may end. May end. Good point. And it, 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 it may be very well that she comes back as a different carbon life form or enters into another dimension or is a spirit or a microbe. Like, who knows? Who knows? And who are we to say good or bad? Yeah. Well or badly. That's like, such a good point. I mean, it will be painful, don't get me wrong, if that's what ends up happening, but I don't know. And I'm willing to admit it. happened to this you know deep sense of needing to push it as far as you can go you know as you said you get kind of scared to death there on the streets of san francisco but is it still there like is that still a part of you that's still kind of simmering along that thinking well maybe this isn't done maybe maybe i can push this a little further i have those thoughts but i i learned in one of my rehabs to name that thought that like creeps in that like well I could I could push it more because I'm not dead I'm not actually homeless I'm not you know like but like you name that thought like you know I think of those thoughts as like seventh grade or eighth grade me talking like that impulsive like angry person and then I like take it like as the insightful mature person that I've become I'm like no I like I parent that thought I parent that younger me that's telling me to do that I'm like, like do you no. call it oh that's the seventh grade me I mean yeah actually, yeah mm-hmm. every time it pops into my head I'm like nah like you are just you know I I just I parent it and I I talk to myself I, I run through the conversation with myself like recently even I just got out of rehab yesterday and like I am you know those thoughts are like I have they put me on a bunch of new meds and I'm like, you could totally pop like five of those and feel, feel pretty good. And I'm immediately like, Nope, that's out of the question. Like we're not doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. The word, the word choice of parent, like parent that younger reckless self because parents suggest compassion, suggest patience, suggest not, not trying to like get rid of it or hate it or crush it, but like, no, that, that is a part of me. Yeah. But um and it's there, but I'm gonna try to be the mature, yeah, compassionate, sort of patient version of myself and just but not indulge it. Yeah, I mean, um uh, my mom really taught me that where like if you try to push away a thought and you tell it, you know, get out of my head, I don't wanna think about you, it's gonna come back ten times harder. And she she tells me to um invite the thought to sit down at a table with me. And be like, why? Why are you here? You know, what? What do you? What do you want? And just 
have a conversation with it instead of being like, leave, get out. Mm, I like that. Tell me about some of the additional work you've done in, in more recent months and years to try to handle your own pain and, and helplessness and despair and powerlessness. And First and foremost, just honoring myself. I spent way too much time being a fixer and worrying about everybody else. And so just taking the time for myself to tend to myself to signal to myself and to the universe that I'm important and that I'm taking the time to heal. So for example, I moved to California during COVID and found myself in the land of alternative healing. And anytime someone would say to me, oh, there's this thing called rolfing, you should try it. And Reiki, you should try it. And every time someone suggested something, I would say yes, whatever it was crystals, cold plunge, you know, you name it, I would try it because I wanted the experience and I wanted to signal to myself and to the world, like, I'm here for this. I want to heal. And it's important to me to expand and experiment and learn. So I just kept showing up for all of those experiences. And I've done a lot of kind of wacky things. <laughs> some of them were great <laughs> and some of them were silly. Um, nothing traumatic or bad has happened. Um, you know, and then within that psychedelics is one big basket that has been profoundly liberating. Yeah. Tell me more about how you moved into that space. I work in business innovation. And so whenever, s since probably 2017, any inquiry into the future of mental health brings you to psychedelics. So I had been researching and aware just on the periphery of this movement that was coming. And I was curious about it and open to it, as I am about most things. Um, and I started to see it as something that maybe could help Lydia. And now nobody in the literature or in psychological circles was talking about its applications to teenagers. And of course, you've got the developing brain. And I thought to myself, this is potentially crazy. No one is going to come think, consider, no therapist is going to consider this for a, at that time, I guess she was probably 16 for a 16 year old. So I thought it was highly unlikely that I would find someone willing to work with her. But I started to reach out to through, you know, word of mouth and underground network and so forth to talk to guides and interview people. And um, that's how I started to learn. And initially it was really a mother seeking a solution for a daughter who was struggling. Um, but someone very wise said to me, if you're going to embark on this journey for her, you should understand it yourself first as the mother the mother is the heart of the family and i thought 
huh, that's a novel idea because I've never really been one for drugs and it didn't entirely appeal to me, but I thought it was such a wise comment. There was just something about it that resonated with me. So I opened myself to that possibility. And then, I don't know, COVID happened and we ended up moving from New York City to California and found ourselves within 30 miles of two of the leaders of the ketamine-assisted therapy research and and they've been at this for a very long time. And, um, and I had been aware of them for some time, but then found myself in proximity. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting. I wonder if they're seeing people during COVID. And so I reached out and that's really how it started. Um, we started working with them and, um, incredible people. And they, they work a psychiatrist and a therapist and they work in tandem and hold with such love a space for Lydia and for our family. And everything started to shift about that time. It, it, like I said before, it just started to open up a little bit of breathing room, started to change the conversation, started to change the dynamic in myself, between she and I, and in our family. Just started to like create a little more space to breathe. So she was doing treatments. Were you also? Yeah. Okay. I was the first. Mm. And, and we kind of, we never did it in parallel, but it was kind of, we would go back and forth. Imagine your kid whose mother has, you know, waggled her finger at you and screamed and cried and intervened and sent her to wilderness. She did four months in wilderness. She at that time been to many rehabs and inpatient, outpatient. And imagine her surprise to have her mother sit down and say, you know, there's this treatment that I'd like to talk to you about. And it includes psychedelics, which she didn't really know too much about. She'd certainly heard about it. I mean, you can imagine how surprised she was. And she kind of said, yes, I'd be open to that. <laughs> <laughs> she said, right now, should we do it right this minute? And, uh, and from that moment, she just, you know, she took that approach of, and of course there is that element to it. And let's just be honest. She's, she's seeking um, but it is a different drug experience and what it has, as I have said to this group that we work with in Northern California, and I've said to them several times, it hasn't closed the door to her addiction, but it has opened such a profound door to her interior life. And it has shifted so much in our dynamic that it outweighs the risks of it being just another of that seeking behavior. Yeah. The way I heard you describe that was it's not closing the door to addiction, but it's opening the door to other connections, connection yeah. with herself and with people around her. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it continues to unfold like that. That was the first. And we've done, um, we've done other psychedelic journeys. Um, other medicines and modalities.
you started doing some ketamine assisted therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how that came about and what's come from that. It has been the most impactful thing I've ever done in my life. It was the turning point of my mental health. You know, like I still struggled a lot, um, but I used to be such an angry and reactive person. And in doing the ketamine therapy, I just gained perspective on everything. And I just become, I became this person who wanted to be, you know, the light in, in other people's day. Like it just made me who I truly think that I am, who is like somebody who, even if you're mean to me, you know, I think like, wow, you're so angry. Like, I feel really bad for you. Let me be this person who lights up your day because you're obviously having a bad day. You know, it just, it let me be a loving person. I was so cold and so like, I I had this huge wall up. It just, it broke down my wall. And I've never been able to trust, you know, a therapist as much as I trust my therapist now. And I think that's not just the ketamine. I think she is like, a beautiful person. I think she's just, I love her so much. You know, I, I've never trusted a therapist as much as her, but I it's different with her. I'm curious. Cause you, you've been in a lot of therapy before you've been to tons of rehabs Yeah, and then you meet a therapist who does ketamine assisted psychotherapy. I'm curious, like what was, what was the special sauce with her? And then also how did that play out in the ketamine work? I just, everybody, you know, has different approaches that they like in therapy. Like some people like therapists who are just kind of like straight to the point. And, you know, my therapist is, she just comes at it with unconditional love. Just, I've never felt judged by her ever. Um, And that's my biggest thing is like fear of judgment. I like don't say a lot because I'm like, oh, you're going to think this of me. I've never had that feeling once with her. She's just, she just holds like, it makes me, (laughs) she holds such a beautiful space for me. Like Mm -hmm. she just, I don't know. I just really, she makes me feel like I will hold this for you. Like tell me and I will take some of that weight for you. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm guessing that, to be an addict still struggling, you know, the thought of going to ketamine assisted psychotherapy might have caused mom and her dad, or even you some fear or doubt thinking like, okay, here's a substance that's clearly abused and some people get addicted to it. How did that process happen that you and or your mom or dad decided, you know, now's the time to try ketamine assisted therapy? Well, my mom was the one, I didn't even know what it was. My mom brought it up to me and she said, I'm going to try this first and see what I think of it and see if I think it's right for you. Yeah, she tried it and she had the same experience that I have. She felt her warmth and she felt the, the, the way that the office feels like home. And like, I just, yeah. And then she said, like, I think you should try this. And it is 
like sometimes I have to, I catch myself kind of getting a little fiend-y over it. You know, I fiend over it sometimes. If I'm in a really bad place, you know, and my parents, I'm like, can I do a ketamine treatment? And my parents say, no, I, I like freak out. And I, I get really angry and um, start crying, you know, which they're like, this is addict behavior. Like, you need to take a second and realize how you're reacting to this right now. But for the most part, I really... I think of, I don't even think of it as a drug, you know, like, I see it as this, this thing that I do that makes me able to talk about things that I can't talk about when I'm, you know, not on the ketamine, because I, I get really, like, sick to my stomach when I try to talk about specific things, or, like, just opening up feels a little sickening to me Mm. um at least in part because of judgment fear of judgment yeah yeah and yeah when i when i do the the ketamine like i will when i do the at-home sessions it's i can open up to my mom and that's like a big thing for me is like i don't really i don't i have a hard time opening up to my parents especially Mm. because you felt most judged by her yeah Mm. Yeah, and um, I will, like, I'll, like, call her into the room while I'm still under, and I'm, like, can you sit with me? And I just, like, tell her all these things that I've thought about and that what's happening, and, like, she sits with me, and that's just really been, it's been a really beautiful experience to, to enter the psychedelic world with my mom, because I think we just share this thing now that nobody else in my family really understands. We have this, like, I don't want to say enlightenment, but like we have this perspective on the world and this like eye opening, like way of thinking that like, you can't even really describe in words, but we both know what it is because we've had these experiences together. Doing the ketamine-assisted therapy allowed her to enter into a therapeutic conversation with someone, with a trusted adult, in a way that she never had in all of her years of therapy. She was just sitting there, going through the motions. She, she would not, and, and she still has a hard time opening, revealing, being vulnerable, I guess. I don't know why she grew up in a family where (laughs) we talked about everything, very open lines of communication. Our other daughter is very communicative, but she never gave herself that permission or felt comfortable sharing her interior world. And it's only now that I'm just beginning to get glimpses of it, that she lets me in a little bit. And, and a lot of that interior world has come by way of the psychedelics and, and our shared journey of psychedelic-assisted therapy, where we, we can talk about energy and vibrational um, connection and the limits of language. Those kinds of things are, are how we talk now. And she feels like I get her. And such a beautiful gift 
to have gone from being in this contentious relationship that was driven by my fear and shame to being in this place of wonderment and respect for her and, um, and just a deep desire to know her. at a really good place as she does her own work I see her inner child coming out so much and I also think that's because when I started doing ketamine and all these psychedelics my perspective of parents changed I used to see them as authority figures and like they were like they were parents they knew everything they like you know, why are they acting like this? They know their parents, you know, but once I started doing the, the psychedelic work, I, I, I saw my mom as this little girl who's just older now, you know, she's still a little girl, but she's older. <laughs> and it just gave me a lot more compassion for her and patience with her. And she has this open-mindedness like none like no one I've met before I can tell her anything and she just rolls with it she's like yeah like tell me more you know she's curious she wants to she wants to pick my brain she wants to understand me like I'll play I'll play songs for her and she knows that music is really music is you know how I express emotion a lot of times, especially with my parents. And I send her, or I'll play her a song and where my dad would be like, I don't like this, turn it off. (laughs) She's like, she listens to the lyrics and she's like, oh, listen to that line. Like, like that line is like, I like, I feel that like, you know, she, and then she, she asks me to play them because she knows that like they represent something big to me. Do you think that part of your healing path is because she's working hard to change the way she is? I aspire. I aspire to be like her now. Like I I want to be as gentle and like just you know internally beautiful as she is now like I look up to her so much and it it makes me yeah it makes me want to grow and do the work that she's doing because she's just become she is just an amazing person Mm. you know as you look forward now um what scares you because it sounds like you know as a younger kid kind of nothing scared you hurting my family again the way that I've been for so many years. Up until a few months ago, I didn't realize how much my using affected them. Like when they would tell me like, we were so scared like this, you know, I didn't, I was like, well, what about me? Think about how I felt like I'm, I'm the one who's putting myself through this. Like I'm, you know, and yes, that is true. And they have had 
to put all of their time, money, and attention onto me, which takes the spotlight away from my sister. She has had no, she doesn't, she hasn't had the attention she deserves since sixth or seventh grade, you know, because it's all been on me. My parents can't do hobbies. They haven't been able to like pick up hobbies that they like. They haven't been able to like go take time for themselves. Or if they do, they're thinking, is Lydia dead right now? Is What is Lydia doing? Is she like out with some homeless person, like smoking, you know, meth? Like they're all of their time and attention was on me. They couldn't get on with their lives. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, I have to fucking, I have to stop this. How did like you this, come to realize that? It mean, sounds like that was a critical thing. He trusted me to go out with a friend because I was about to go to sober living. He said, if you do drugs when you're out with, you know, this, this, my best friend, you will not get into sober living. They will not let you in. And I was like, I promise I'm not going to do it. I was planning on doing coke the whole time. I knew I was going to go out and do coke. So I, I went out. I did like two grams with my friend. I'm out. We're driving around. My dad texts me. He's like, he's like, can you come home now? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, are you sober? And I knew I wasn't going to get away with it because like on the come downs, I get really like tweaky and weird. It's very obvious that I'm coming down from something. So I was just like, no, I did coke. And he texted me. Do you know how used I feel by you? And I could see exactly how he would say it and it just like broke my heart and I was like you are right These medicines are healing medicines. And the ketamine-assisted therapy, for me, awakened me to this other dimension. And once I saw that, I wanted to continue to learn and grow and expand. So I myself sought out for example, MDMA, because of the trauma that I felt I was storing in my body, in my cells. And, oh gosh, for someone who has relational trauma, sitting in the loving embrace of my guide and that experience was beyond anything I've ever experienced. And you don't forget. You hold that feeling. I can go there now. I can close my eyes and be in that loving embrace and feel the warmth of that space that she held for me. And you just don't lose it. Oh, it's so profound. So how could that not then spill out into everything I do? You should hear my colleagues at work talk about me. 
I mean, I am... I just... I love love. I love people. It's always been the heart of me to love. And it has been... I don't know what the word is. I, I have... I haven't been able to express that love because it was caught up in shame, really, and anger and fear. Yeah. And so when those parts fall away, I can just show up with loving kindness. And I feel like in so many ways, including business contexts, my role is to show up with pure loving kindness. And I really try to do that. I try to bring that energy into a business meeting. And I think in part that's why I've been successful at what I do. Because I hold that as it's been held for me. Yeah. How has that shifted things with you and Lydia as you've been able to be, you know, approach her and be in that relationship with just more love and compassion? I feel like she, I would suspect that she felt very judged by me for a very long time, that she was a disappointment to me. And she says things now like, I feel like we're on the same wavelength and I feel like you really get me or we're connected and mm. just these beautiful that's, little that's things. That's amazing. Yeah. Gosh. Because, you know, I think one of the hugest challenges having a family member in addiction is you need to, I mean, connection is what's going to pull people out of addiction, but everything the addict's doing is to consciously and unconsciously just bomb the bridge of connection. So when your addict loved one is just destroying every tendril of connection between you two over and over and over and over yet just keep showing up and, and to be there, it's like, I'm still here. She has that so fiercely in both my husband and myself. She really feels that. I know she does. I have no question about that. It's a little more complicated with some of the bridges that she's burned with friends and so forth. Mm -hmm. I'm careful about labeling her. I don't like to call her an addict. Um, her state of mental wellness is just a big open question. I don't know what labels make sense for her at any given time. And I just don't feel like they're that useful. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because, you know, that's so uh, kind of against the 12-step thing, you know, just come to a meeting, hi, I'm Craig, I'm an addict, mm -hmm. hi, I'm Lydia, I'm an addict, you know, mm -hmm. versus, yeah, I mean, labels are powerful in both positive and negative ways because I think the way we crystallize reality is with words i guess i hear what you're saying is the crystallization of addict just is it that seems too limiting or too pejorative or too hopeless or it's just it's just that feeling that if you over identify with anything you're in the grip of that thing mm. so hold it loosely sure use it it's it's very useful in a 12-step setting but hold it loosely it doesn't define you in a singular way, I would hope. All I can say is presence. All I can control is this moment. And the more I stay grounded in 
the joy and the spaciousness of any given moment, the more possible it is that positive things will unfold. Because if I'm running some anxious future loop of if this, then that, it doesn't serve me, which then doesn't serve her or anybody else. So it's really as simple and yet profound as it gets. It's just presence in the now. present in the now, Juliet said. I love that. For ultimately, we have very little and possibly no meaningful control over how the drama of life will unfold for each of us. All we have is our attention and where we choose to place it. And we have our attitude, our mindset. Will it be fear or acceptance, anger or curiosity, resentment or compassion? isolation, or seeking connection. I would argue that the meaning of life is to seek and deepen connection. This is how we handle all the scary and difficult stuff that's coming our way. That's how we deepen the joy and the adventure. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, you can reach me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. You can also support the podcast by sharing episodes with others or on social media and by writing us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back in two weeks.